just for information, uh, the data set is available and has been available for some time. And uh, to make matters worth uh, two of them, uh, they're two six-week diaries, and uh, you're very happy to have them. Uh, the only thing we want at the end is uh, a PDF of the papers uh, so that we can see what happened with it. Um, now, what I want to do is indeed talk about microsimulation. This has been an interest ever since my, my PhD, where I did, in a way, a very first activity-based uh, microsimulation. And we'll come back to that terminology in a minute. So, what do I want to talk about? The first thing I want to talk about is the idea of equilibrium, because all of the effective microsimulation models are indeed models searching for equilibrium. There aren't really any convincing models which trace development over time yet. There have been lots of attempts, there's lots of ongoing work in that, in that direction, but essentially all microsimulation models do at the moment, they do search for equilibrium. <coughs> Everybody knowing the limitations of that, but that's what they're currently doing. Uh, but they can do things which the standard aggregate approaches currently can't deliver. So this is the motivation of continuing along those lines. I guess most of you know those two lines out of the 1952 paper uh, by John Borderup, where he formulated, actually well before uh, Nash formulated his equilibrium principle, the Nash equilibrium in road networks. And essentially that was the starting point for the last 60 years worth of modeling development in transport and related fields. The question, how do you translate this requirement, which is very artificial, very stylized, into a model which allow you to compare states before and after? Now, what has became clear after transport had jumped on this with great enthusiasm in the 50s, by about the 70s, people got tired of it and they started to criticize it quite correctly. And that is obviously linked to the work in which Peter was most probably involved uh, at Transport Studies Unit at the time to come up with a criticism and critique and a review of these equilibrium models to en engage and enlarge the scope of analysis and scope of description. Now, the problem was that the program of academic work which came from that critique hasn't really come to a fruition in terms of usable models, in the sense of usable models that you can give it to your quite ordinary consultancy and to get decent work out of that. There are some models out there now which you can entrust with academic groups or very highly qualified consultants and they can make useful work of it. But it has been essentially 40 years of work. Now, the key uh, criticism of that work and related work around that time was travel is derived demand. So you have to understand the activities and shift away from your focus on travel. Travel is really just the byproduct in just about all cases. And that raises challenges which is still engaging the field. 
because that asks the question that the benefits are in the activities undertaken. The second is travel is constrained. So you have to have a much better description of the social and, and situation of the person as well. You have to remember that the key models which started out transit modeling in the 50s treated every trip individually and every person individually. So that was the second big criticism. Travelers aren't in equilibrium. Now, I hope that none of the equilibrium models ever claimed that they were in equilibrium. But clearly, the distinction between presentation and what needs to be done for mathematical reasons got fuzzy in political arguments. Now, travelers aren't in equilibrium. Much more substantial, also for the equilibrium models, is the critique that travelers don't know all, all alternatives. And while for some of the dimensions of travel behavior, that isn't quite true, you clearly know all the modes available, it becomes quite obvious when you think about where you're going to go for your next pizza, because you definitely don't know all pizzerias in Oxford, never mind London or bigger places. So the knowledge of the alternatives is one of the crucial issues around we are still worrying how to address that. And finally, uh, the, plan, the travelers don't plan their whole day, never mind a whole week in advance. There has been very, very nice empirical work, particularly by a Canadian colleague called Sean Doherty, who has actually asked people to report when they plan a certain activity. And the bulk of the activities are spontaneous or planned within a couple of hours, within a day, of their actually taking place. And in particular, when we start to want to model whole days, which is the ambition of the current equilibrium models, it, that becomes a problem. So I know that all the work I'll present from now on is reporting a stylized result. A stylized result which hopefully under supports us in decision making. Essentially, it is that Groundhog Day of that famous film where all the agents have enough time to repeat, explore the environment till they have found the day they like. And obviously, Groundhog Day doesn't exist. But for policy analysis, you need to simulate the Groundhog Day to be able to compare alternatives. There isn't really much else you can do. There are some ideas how you might be able to deal with it, but we, have, we aren't there. So it is a stylized fact which we are now reporting. Now we try to make the stylized fact matching what we know about behavior and about existing patterns as well as possible. But we always are aware that we are modeling the stylized fact. Now, if you take this seriously, how would the conceptualization of the decision processes actually look? But if we could build the perfect model, or some approximation of that, what would you do? If you had a truly dynamic model, you would need to model both the mantle map and the activity, activity repertoire of the travelers. What do I mean with that? 
activity repertoire and mental map are actually two sides of a coin. Mental map, I don't really need to tell this here in geography, is this idea that the traveler has an understanding of relative distances between any two points in space and has a relatively good idea of how to get from one to the other. And he will also, she will also have an idea of the costs involved. Activity repertoire is the other side of the coin because that stresses what do you do when you get there. This is the idea that you have certain packages of places, people, and things which you want to do and put into your daily life. This is going to the golf course with two particular friends in one location. That is going out to the movies in a particular cinema and going afterwards to a particular pub. Those are elements in the activity repertoire. So you have an idea of the place, the cost, the social environment, and the benefit you arrive from that type of activity. And these two things are constantly evolving as we learn, as we experience the world further. Now, the activity repertoire is obviously fed by our psychological needs, physiological needs, our desires, our pending activities. And out of that repertoire, one could think of that people <coughs> construct what I call an activity calendar. Things they have at the back of their mind or the front of their mind as things to do. Now this is a construct which I haven't been able to verify in any meaningful way empirically, but maybe just using myself as a sample of one and widely generalizing, I don't think this sounds too bad as a first approximation. And out of that, you would think in a modeling terms, you would want to construct an activity schedule. The idea that there is a plan for the day. That plan obviously meets reality the moment you start executing it. So you would want to have uh, some idea of how people actually fare in moving and undertaking the activity. So they, they meet the network, they meet the opportunities, and out of the conflict and competition which arises there, and the mishaps and misunderstandings, uh, conflicts arise and omissions arise, which force the people either to reschedule the missed bus, the friend who decided that the cinema was tomorrow and not today, and similar things, which leaves you with a list of un undertaken activities but it will also mean that you have learned new things because you have met the friend at a place where uh, he wanted you to meet, where you hadn't been before. So you essentially would want to trace both the activity space, the activity repertoire, and the natural map of the person over time. And it's quite obvious that this is a gigantic project. Now, to make matters worse, uh, we know that we are not just animals of, with a time horizon of days, but we do have longer-term projects. They range from finishing education, building a home, uh, planning uh, an exciting and complex holiday, uh, organizing a big birthday event. And these projects 
are tied to what I call life goals on the one side and what I call the personal world, so our understanding of how the world works around us. And again, you could think of this as, as a similar structure. The life goals get translated into the projects to realize that you have the life goal to become, let's say, a labor MP, and that would mean that you would need to do certain things before you can be, become a labor MP. That would be a project involving all kinds of activities which group daily life into a coherent and meaningful whole. These projects, again, need to be planned, need to be negotiated with the other social uh, contacts around you. You can't become a labor MP just by saying you will become a labor MP. You have to ask others. And then, again, the same logic that you try it out, you have competition, you have conflicts, and out of that, the list of projects evolve. You might finish your degree, you might not finish your degree, uh, you might get that nomination, or you might not get that nomination. So this idea of a project as a unit which holds together daily life, I think is an interesting extension to what we have thought about so far. And we have done a bit of empirical work on this, and I'll show a bit of that at the very end of my, of my talk. So this would be the ideal model. And now coming back to what we currently can do. Again, now we are back at what we currently can do. And what we currently can do is to calculate equilibrium, either be they deterministic user equilibria or stochastic user equilibria, uh, and their possibilities. Now, what does the model do in its core? All of these equilibrium models try to find, not try, find a self-consistent description of the system. So in this equilibrium, the users are expecting those costs which they experience when they execute their activities. To find that solution, there are various ways you can solve this mathematically, uh, but one of the preferred ways of doing this is an iterative scheme in which you start with an initial solution to the daily plans of the travelers, what I call here activity scheduling. And that, that daily plan tells you how many trips, how many activities, in what order, when to start, how long, what mode, where they take place, and what route they were involved. That activity schedule is executed to allow to find out to what extent the plans of the initial solution are in conflict and competition with each other. That competition is most obviously a concern on the road, that's what we call a queue to get on the bus. That's what we call a jam on the roads. That's what we also call uh, a sold-out cinema performance. That's what we also sold uh, a restaurant which tells you you can come back in two months. Uh, that's a hotel which tells you, oh, no, you can't have that fare anymore. You will have to wait. So there's competition not only on the road, but also in all other levels of activities which we want to model. Now, Transmodel traditionally haven't looked at the competition for the activities, but that's something which we have started to do in our microsimulation. So that's what we started to do. Now, we do this by returning the generalized cost of the travel, the K, back to the models of the activity scheduling 
adjust the schedules, do it again until the whole system has become self-consistent. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. Uh, and one of the most difficult ones to trace is how do we describe the tastes of the travelers? Because we have this model of activity scheduling, which implies that we can describe how people weigh up the different attributes of a day or of a, just of a trip. Cost versus time, reliability versus the beauty of the road uh, of the experience. All of these things will be described by suitable parameterization of some econometric models of those choices. The problem is that in principle, we would need to solve the problem like this. What do I mean by that? The parametric calibration needs both the chosen alternatives, those which we have observed the travelers to, to undertake, as well as those alternatives which they haven't undertaken, which they could have undertaken. And those non-chosen alternatives are typically generated by a model. And because they're generated by a model, they are infected by whatever assumption you have put into that model. And that means, in principle, that you have to iterate between parameter calibration, scheduling, competition in the network, and back to find a coherent equilibrium. That is sometimes done by researchers and consultants who are very, very conscientious, have lots of time, lots of patience, and a client which is willing to support that. And generally, they don't, <coughs> the clients in particular. So what we do is that we essentially start out with some description of the non-chosen alternatives, not thinking very hard about the model parameters which went into these models, and then start the process from there. It's a particular issue whenever you have a model which looks at public transport, because public transport models inherently include parameters to weigh uh, transfers, waiting times, or transfer waiting times, access times against each other. And, the mo and ha these models having these parameters are infected by those original parameters. So you can't get around it. But as I said, professional practice, for good reasons, does it this way. Now. So where are we now? So this is where we are. So Peter and his colleagues and lots of other colleagues pointed out in the 70s and 80s that the, current, the then current state of the art wasn't sufficient, that it isolated the trips, it ignored the household context, it ignored a, a wide range of variables uh, in, in their models. Now clearly modeling has moved on from there and in particular there's a, there's a family of models which calls itself activity-based models. It's this ABM, which I've put here in parentheses. Now, the best of these models are currently being integrated with what is called assignment models to address the issue of competition on the network. Now, these models are still not perfect because what they do is they generate initial schedules. There are, there's a very good, good model 
called Albatross, which is uh, developed in the Netherlands, uh, which uses a rule-based system. There are models based on econometric models of choice, going back to the PhD of uh, John Bowman. Uh, there are other models which do that. They then, unfortunately, aggregate their results into OD matrices, taking out a lot of the known heterogeneity, which they have so far maintained, aggregate this into OD matrices, use assignment, which is one way of solving the root choice as well as competition question, return the costs from that to the model, new schedules are generated, and the process continues till it's in equilibrium. The key criticism of this approach is the aggregation of the plans into the OD matrices and the use of the assignment, because you lose the coherence. Plus, what I think is more problematic, you introduce two different criteria for equilibrium. Because you have an equilibrium in the assignment, but that is not the same thing as the equilibrium of the schedules. So, there is a gap. Now, uh, what we have been doing uh, is slightly different. We is a relatively large team of people working in Berlin under, with Kai Nagel, myself, and a couple of colleagues elsewhere. Uh, have adopted an approach which maintains the coherence of the individual agents. So we maintain a population of individuals representing the population uh, throughout. So we start again by generating initial schedules, and these have to be good enough, but not perfect. We then calculate, and that's important, the roots these agents will take between any two points as part of the initial schedule. So they are not part of the assignment. And then we just physically simulate those plans. We just have a physical simulation of traffic flow on a network. And that can be highly detailed or it can be relatively fast, quick and dirty. That simulation tells us what the cost involved for the travelers is. We return those costs to what we call a score or utility measurement of the experience of that schedule. So we have an approach which values one of those days completely. So it includes both the activities undertaken as well as the travel time as well as all the other elements of the day. So we have now for all agents this score and then we generate new plans for some of all of those agents. Because these agents will have, will have opportunities to improve their plan. Changing a route, changing a mode, going to a new destination. Now, because this is for convenience reasons, and because we don't want to wait till this noise Gericht, till we have the solution, uh, we actually do the replanning for a share of the agent population uh, and find this equilibrium relatively fast. And then iterate. 
So the main difference here is that A, we acknowledge that the schedule has to be over, equilibrium has to be across the schedule, and we maintain the coherence of the agent throughout. Now, within that description, you can do many, many things. So what I would show is just one of the possibilities of how you could address and solve the problem set up in this way. I want to give you an idea of what Matsim currently can do uh, by first showing you a little clip out of recording one of the simulation and then taking you through the various steps uh, which we have and then they draw an outlook to further work. This is 40 minutes for Zurich. Let, let me go back and hope that it works one more time. So what you see is the city of Zurich from 6.20 to 7, and you see as the pictures become dark uh, how the speed in Zurich goes down. This is still a relatively rough network. Uh, it's a planning network, which is also used for national uh, transport planning. Uh, you can still see the agents individually moving, but all this simulation does is move them around and calculate the delays they have at junctions. Based on that, the iteration then works. Okay. Matson is an open source project. Uh, it is written in Java, it is published under GNU Public License. It's available at a website called www.matsun.org. Uh, it is involves at the moment uh, Kainagel in Berlin and a spin-off firm which was set up last year. Uh, there's other partners elsewhere. We try to do our best to keep that whole group together so that the development doesn't become too uh, disjunct uh, and try to offer introductions through user meetings and tutorials so that new users can start with the software. Um, there, we are starting to get, get some interest elsewhere. We have implementations for all of Switzerland. I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. And there's a couple of other cities and regions for which suitable models have been set up so that we can uh, start to do uh, policy-relevant work as well. What is important is use, people can actually use Maxim as a, as a toolbox and take out individual parts. And in particular, we have teamed up with colleagues who are running their own activity-based models, Theo Renze, uh, Harry Timmermans, uh, Shlomo Bekoa, and others, who just use the assignment part out of Matsin uh, to solve their own uh, problems. And that has been reported in a couple of papers uh, in the last years. Now, the schedule of models obviously needs a scheduling function. And in the first instance, we worked with a function which goes back on the work of Victory, prize winner, to describe the trade-offs between activity duration and departure time. And includes uh, acti uh, activity performance and travel performance. Now, what I show you here in red are those elements of the scheduling problem which we can currently address with that function. And as you see, the program is actually much larger and bigger than just the traditional transport dimensions. 
you have, obviously, a number and type and sequence of activity. Then you have start and duration. And then, in principle, you'd want to know who is sharing that activity. Because whenever we think about activities, there are costs involved. So it's a, it, is, it does really make a difference how many people are among the activities and who, who, who the costs are allocated, as well as it's a completely different experience if you go out for dinner alone or with friends or with your wife or your partner. So that is an issue, but we can't do anything about that at the moment, although work is starting it. There's the question of how the expenditure is divided. Uh, and then something we can do, which is a lo location of the activity. Although, having said that, at the level of the individual facility, this is tricky because transfer planning has normally worried about zones and you didn't need to know whether this restaurant was better or the, than the other. Uh, if you really are modeling individual activities at individual addresses, you need to know. The movement, you have to look at the egress and access, you have to look at the mode, you have to look at the route, and that's something we can do. But where it becomes tricky again is to find out who is traveling along, and again, how the expenditure is divided. Now, these are obviously quite important policy questions whenever we talk about car pooling, car sharing, and all the other modes which want to introduce forms of transport in between standard regulated public transport and individual motorized transport with a car or a motorcycle. Again, we are making progress on that, but we are not claiming yet that we can do it. The formula is simple. Uh, we add the utilities, utilities from the activities. We are using a logarithmic function to uh, incorporate that things get boring. Uh, and we have a linear function of, uh, of the travel and its time, uh, as you would expect. Uh, there is a penalty for being late, uh, which is important because we do model the opening hours of the activity opportunities uh, to make sure that people arrive for work and that they don't shop when they can't shop and go to a restaurant when it's open and not when it's closed. So there's a late penalty. Now, how do we get started? How do we do this? Uh, here we are actually rather simple-minded. The initial number, type, and sequence of activities we just draw from the existing population of reported days. Obviously, adjusted for socioeconomics and what we can do to, look, to describe the conditional probabilities uh, correctly. For work and school, we again uh, cheat and we take the existing commuter matrix which we have available for the country. Uh, so we just do a conditional choice based on that. Uh, for the secondary uh, activities, we essentially use a time-space-prism-constrained location choice mechanism. Or if we, are, if we don't, can't be bothered, we just randomly choose the activities wherever they are possible. Uh, mode choice, it is a sub-tour-based, not necessarily logic model, and I'll explain that in a second. And route choice, we're just using uh, a very fast uh, Dexter implementation so that the whole thing becomes computationally feasible. Here, this is the idea of the 
uh, uh, time space constrained location choice. Uh, I think most of you will remember the work of Hegestrand, who, who pointed out in the 70s that people don't have all opportunities available, so you need to constrain them. So we are using what we know about the travel time budget between two, uh, between three, between two sequential activities to constrain the choice space. Within that choice space, we use either a random process or uh, a, a, a logic model to do that. In addition, we're not only using the MML, but we are constraining the capacities as well. So we say that we make an estimate of how many people can fit into a particular location, and if that location is oversubscribed, it gets penalty, which makes sure that the activity is unoversubscribed. So here uh, you have results from uh, various configurations, and the iteration zero is the starting solution. And you can see that the, that the loads in the activities uh, is initial, and then configuration two doesn't have the capacity constraint. Iteration configuration three here has the capacity constraint. You can see that without the capacity constraint, you will have facilities which are heavily overloaded, unrealistically overloaded, and with a capacity constraint, we achieve what we want to. We make sure that the capacities aren't overloaded, which are obviously crucial because otherwise, the best, best situated restaurant in town will have endless queues, and the restaurants a bit elsewhere wouldn't. So this is necessary by necessity. Then on the mode choice side, uh, it, is, it is clear that Within a tour, you are constrained in the choices of your mode. Now, the idea of a tour was one of the big contributions of the early work, is to highlight this constraint, that the moment you have started with a bicycle, you will have to bring it back at the end of the day. Now, unfortunately, it isn't just that you have to bring it back at the end of the day or bring it back to home, but there are possibilities to change mode when you return again to a particular location. This is the point that when you get to work and you leave work for, for lunch or for midday breaks, you don't have to take the bike along because the bike can stay at the workplace, you can walk. So the mode choice model allows for that, so we use a realistic description of the mode choice. Now, this is what we do to start the system off. Now, what do we allow at, at every iteration? In essence, again, we are allowing the red elements to be changed. So, in particular, we change the starting time and duration of the activities. And there is both a random mechanism, if we have enough time, and there's a genetic algorithm-based optimization of starting times and activity durations. Location of activity is the same uh, mode and route, again, the same algorithms as before. And in principle, you can feed in, build in anything you like. So if you feel that we are doing enormous injustice to what we want to model by what, how we are currently doing it, you're free to put in a module of your own design and plug it in and the rest of the system will still work. So it is indeed a toolbox around which you can build your own model implementations. The traffic flow simulation 
is uh, the last element which we need to look at. Um, the traffic flow simulation has to be fast. And therefore, we have chosen a relatively or very, very rough description of the dynamics of the system. So what we currently do is we can model detailed signal control and we can uh, model recharging for electric vehicles because we have a project which is addressing electric vehicle questions. Uh, but the model itself is really just a queuing simulation. What does that mean? It really only looks at the queues at junctions to generate delays. We are not interested at all what happens on the road between two junctions. There's just the standard travel time, and all the delays are from the junction dynamics. <coughs> this is obviously a, a crude way of doing it, but anything else kills you computationally. And it produces the proper dynamics, but again, simplification. So the model, which we are, or the implementation which we are currently using among the eight we tried and tested and have available, is one in which we have a time step based simulation, so the agents are moved every second. We model uh, the signals, and no, we don't model the signals at the moment, but we have a detailed description of public transport, so passengers move to a bus, enter the bus, and leave the bus, and there's a car driver, a bus driver, which picks up the bus at the depot, drives it around for the day for his shift, and returns it back to the depot. So there's a separation between the bus and the passenger. So that's the preferred simulation, but again, feel free to develop whatever you need. Now, we use this system to model all of Switzerland in a project we finished last year, and it was essentially for 2009. And I just want to give you the idea of both the effort involved and the computational effort which is behind this uh, to warn you against this idea that this is going to be uh, not an effort. Uh, so during the iterations, I explained that. So what is the scale of the model? We modeled all of all of the, the whole population of the country, so six million agents. We use the network, which is the navigation network for Switzerland, which involves approximately a million links, which is about two orders of magnitude larger than the assignment models which are normally used. Clearly, London is, a, is an exception. I don't know, London has what? 100,000 links in the planning network? Something like that. Um, we, we had a million destinations, uh, so people could travel to a million individually identified destinations, and we used essentially a second-by-second -second, uh, rhythm for the, for the, uh, for the day. Uh, this gives you an idea of how the computing times were divided up. Uh, one iteration takes on, in this configuration, clearly we have moved on, we have parallelized it more, but this gives you an idea of how long it took us. One iteration took about four hours. Uh, up to equilibrium, it took about uh, 50 to 100 iterations, so you're waiting. Uh, but dynamic traffic sign models are not much faster at the moment either. Uh, the green part is the traffic flow simulation. So that was about 60% of the time. And although it is a massively 
simplified simulation. It still takes us about two thirds. And the rest was taken for uh, the activity duration optimization and <coughs> the shortest path calculations. So this is the rest of the time. Now, clearly, you need to do something about it, and this, but this is other work uh, which we need to do. So how good did the model replicate what we know? Um, just look at the two graphs. Uh, this is between 8 and 9, iteration 30, so not quite yet at the end. Uh, we are really getting uh, quite well uh, comparing counts versus uh, simulated numbers. We have a problem, which are the red dots. Uh, they are generally in the, in the vicinity of the borders because in this run, we ignored the border crossing traffic. So there was just some, something missing, so we couldn't reproduce that. But we are getting within reasonable limits of what is known from other models. And what was actually more important to us, we actually got the dynamics of the system pretty well across the day. Uh, we have a problem in the morning peak. In the Zurich area, this is to some extent border crossing traffic. And we had a problem in the evening which had to do with the way we modeled leisure activities, uh, so we have an idea of what happened. So in principle, the model was able to reproduce at a navigation level network within reasonable computing times the travel patterns for the country. And clearly, if you want to be faster, you don't model all the agents. You model 10% of the agents, 25% of the agents, 2% of the agents. You don't use the navigation network, but use the planning network. So there's various ways in which you can make use of the tool available, and the tool is indifferent to the resolution you use. It obviously has an impact on the results and the interpretation, but in principle, it's not geared to this, but it is able to deal with that level of detail. Now, I want to say quickly something about induced demand. Uh, induced demand is uh, both a red herring and a red rag uh, in the policy discussion. It's a, red, it's a red herring because transit models have been able to deal with the bulk of the impacts for the longest time. The question was if the client and the policy context actually asked for that modeling to be done. But one element which is still an open question is do improvements in accessibility, i.e. lowering the generalized cost of travel, on average, increase the amount of trip making as such? Are they adding new activities? Now, if you want to do that, uh, you have to use, technically, you can't work with a logarithmic utility function anymore of activity duration. Why not? If you have a logarithmic function of utility duration, it would always pay to divide up a long activity into short ones, you get a higher utility. Now, if you do that naively, the, the optimization will give you activity chains of with 20, 30, 40 activities. That doesn't happen. So you need the different descriptions of how utility is accrued to a person. And we adopted one form which had been tested in an earlier PhD uh, of you in Eindhoven which took this S shape. Uh, the disadvantage of this thing is that it has a whole lot more parameters. It is fiendishly difficult to estimate. Uh, 
but it does its job. Uh, I had one PhD student working on, that, on, on this issue, and she was able to build uh, a, uh, a taboo search based optimizer to optimize the number and sequence and type of activities. He also estimated the model, uh, but for various reasons, the model estimation results aren't all that convincing. But for the longer run, what is even more important is that he found a way of cutting down on the computing times for this approach. Because the, the optimization of both sequence and type and number of activities is very, very costly computationally. What he did do is he came up with the idea of recycling. Essentially, optimizing for a subset of the sample and using these solutions to find quickly optimal solutions for the others. Here is, unfortunately, some of the legend is gone. You see uh, the change in utility by iteration, and you see that both the travel distances and the travel times are changing with the increase in utility. The, ye the yellow line is the previous victory type optimization, and now that you have additional degrees of freedom, the total utility increases, as you would expect. Uh, and you see that the total optimization, the light blue line, and the recycled optimization is only marginally different in terms of utility gain. You clearly have a cost if you recycle. You can't get the same quality, but you're getting nearly as good. And what is more important for us is that the computing times are massively reduced. So if we use the optimization without uh, the rescheduling, uh, we have 50 milliseconds per agent. With the full optimization of sequence and type, you are two orders of nearly two orders of magnitude larger. If you do the recycling, you just need one order of magnitude. So again, and this work will be further explored as we go along. With that, and I want to look a bit beyond what we are doing ourselves and look at some of the wider issues which we have. I have when I went, took you through the list of the dimensions of the, of the scheduling choices, I highlighted that there's a couple of black holes or gray areas where we know very little. And that, those are the ones I, I want to focus on. And one of the biggest ones and most difficult ones to fill is with whom do we do the travel and the activities. And this is particularly urgent because we spend about 40% of our travel on leisure activities. And le leisure is principally about meeting others. That's the bulk of what leisure activities are about. Now, these aren't random people you pick up on the street, but people you know. So we need to have an idea of how the social network of our agents or our population is physically distributed in space. Surprisingly, uh, neither geography nor sociology had any big interest in this question uh, until tracks of people started to be interested as well. Um, and so in the last decade, there has been a growing literature on how friendship networks, acquaintance network, networks, are distributed in space. Uh, 
We are currently doing one study where we are drawing a snowball sample. We started with 40 people. We asked them for their friends with whom they spend leisure. They gave us, on, a, on average, 20 names, if they're willing to give us any. We then, and their addresses, and their names, and then we approached these. And about 30% of those did reply. And then we did the same, and the same, and the same. We, we, will, we did, for the first 20, we did two rounds, and for the second 20, we'll do four rounds of those contacts. And here is the result in terms of the spatial distribution of those friends across Switzerland. We started in Canton Zurich, uh, which has a population of a million and a half, uh, I think it's about 30,000 square kilometers of size, dominated by the city of Zurich, but there's rural areas. And you can see how we spread it out across the country uh, into Switzerland, into Germany, and we reach obviously the US and other places. At that point, some people actually do continue to give us answers. If we write to American friends of an American respondent, we still get answers. So that would have been too big a nap. Uh, the other side effect of this becomes that we can say something about these famous six degrees of separation, which you all, you all know, either from the movies, Schnitzler's play, or Milgram's experiment. Um, and in principle, if this was really true, we would expect the 40 initial seeds to be connected. Uh, we aren't quite there yet. Uh, the, of the 40 original components, there are about 25 left. Uh, so people have linked up. Uh, and we hope that at the end, when we have done the fourth iteration, all the 40 will be linked in a useful way. So that's the graph. Obviously, lots of respondents are missing on that, but that's the other So that's one challenge. If you really want to address the issue of whom are we sharing our activities with, we need to know how the friends are spatially distributed. We need to have tools to generate both the social network and the physical distribution in space. There's work going on in sociology on this, and there's work going on among transport people on that. But at the moment, we can kind of fit the models to meet two out of three parameters, so that's not good enough yet. The other question which I raised earlier is, if you really want to understand daily life, we have to have an idea of these projects. Because otherwise, life is a routine of sleeping, eating, uh, and going to work, or going shopping. And that's not really what life is about. So you really want to have an idea of the bigger projects, the bigger elements which give meaning to a lot of the activities which you observe. Um, a colleague of mine, uh, Stefan Schoenfelder, and myself have done two surveys recently where we did ask people about that. And this is just to give you an idea of the numbers that people report. Uh, so that the people do recognize those concepts, they become meaningful, and we can start to think about how to integrate those ideas into models of travel behavior, uh, which in this case will truly not be equilibrium models because projects inherently aren't an equilibrium construct because they assume that learning takes place, that change takes place, uh, so if we really take that seriously, we are out of the uh, equilibrium concept, but then we might be at a dead loss on policy relevance. 
we'll have to see. And then, if you really want to take this further, uh, we have the whole challenge of integrating that into languages. Uh, this is obviously a big issue around the industrialized world. Do we really want to develop our environment as we have done so far? But if you want to do that, uh, we have a whole range of other modeling elements which we need to bring up. We need to have a really good database structure to keep all the data. And Whatever else the GIS people have done, they haven't really come up with a working concept to incorporate time in their database as well. Um, the next we would need to do, if we really want to do this, we need to have tools which allows us to predict how a city will look in 30 years' time. If we don't want to rely just on existing plans. So we need things which I've called a mass or space optimizer to get that done. And if you think about China or India or places in which really large cities are built from scratch, we probably need also tools to optimize the networks on which all the travel will take place. We obviously need to have all the models on the impacts, mass flow, to look at longer term sustainability, the idea of the city as a big reservoir of resources, as well as of the impact on the environmental side. And all of that needs to be combined with decent models of land use and traffic flow. That is clearly work which needs is not finished. There are bits and pieces. There are good starts on the land use modeling side. There are good solutions on the transport side. Uh, there's obviously lots of work on the, on the impact side. Uh, there's little to nothing on the network and mass optimization. And there's even less understanding of the impacts of the rules under which this system would work. And that's what I've called grammars here. And the grammars are the rules embedded in our regulatory system. That can be an innocent sentence in some engineering guideline which advises against uh, four-way junctions and recommends T-junctions, all the way to regulations about how much density is allowed or permitted or not permitted. And with that, I want to show you that we do work, we do good work on this, uh, with this example. This is uh, an uh, animation of uh, a network optimization tool developed by Basil Wittins, one of my PhD students, uh, who is working on the question, how can you derive an optimal network? Now let's see if this works. So this is the initial solution where the network is available comprehensively. And that started how he removes the, the network till it optimally matches the demand pattern. I show you this not because it is the best possible solution. I just show you that it is possible today to address these questions in reasonable computing time with a reasonable underlying model of track behavior and later on also of land use behavior as well. So we can start to think about optimizing networks. And this is a 625 node example. So this is large enough for a city of 100,000, 200,000 people. So we can say something useful about optimal networks.
And with that, I want to close and thank all the people who actually do the work. Um, uh, these are the people who have been involved in Matsen's development over the last 10 years, Kainago in particular in Berlin. And these are the former doctoral students and the current doctoral students who are working on this issue. And I hope that we'll have a longer list and contributors from elsewhere. And uh, maybe today was a start. <laughs>